And he like, uh, you okay? <laughs> and I'm like, dude, we lost him. And now I got to find a way to tell these other Marines that are his best friend about that. And then I got to tell them we're going out in the morning to get those guys. And how do you do that? I never lost a Marine, period. You know, let alone one that I gave the command, hey, you're good to move, I got you covered. And 10 seconds later, I don't have you covered. So there was some ownership I was taking for that. I did it just like that. I brought him in. I said, hey, the unfortunate reality of war is that sometimes you bury your brothers. If you're not calm, they're not going to be calm. And if, if you're a mess, they're going to be a mess. No matter how far you get removed from the guys doing work on the ground, remember that they're doing something different than you. When you say, okay, we're going to go to war for whatever reason, if you don't believe in it enough to do that, then you better not do it. Launched a uh, my my CEO launched a uh, a group and had a mass casualty evacuation lined up to come get them, and we couldn't get to the ground with it because they're shooting so many fucking rockets at it, and so I that I struggle with that. Um, did that impact you right when it happened, or did no? You? I said fuck them. They shouldn't have been there, yeah. and that like that emotion is is what haunts me. Yeah. Cause that's somebody's kids. And then, you know, later I had kids. And so that it started to get, started to get me, started to get me in my dreams, you know, where I would see my kids on their faces or on their bodies. And, uh, and, and this is no, this is no like uh, shout out for help. I've, I've worked through that, but killing the wrong people didn't bother me. Killing people that didn't deserve it, that bothers me, you know, and there's always going to be that yeah. war will come with that. So Man, that's brutal. Um, so that I understand that the HIMARS capability, this building, let's hypothetically say that a HIMARS hits this building. Does it disappear? This building? Yeah. <laughs> this building's not 30-inch thick mud, so I don't know what it would do to this building. Probably very much what it would, like what uh, IDF is doing to Hamas's buildings. Probably come in, and, and it's got a couple different ways of angles you can fire. You can fire it where it comes straight, through the top, or you can fire it where it comes at a horizontal angle and hits a building. We did ours through the top. They had weak roofs over there, as you know, just like Iraq and some of the rural parts. Um, and the out, the outer, the outers of the building were, were okay. Um, so, I mean, from a capability standpoint, if you dropped one through the roof of this place, it like go away. It, pretty much everybody in here is just oh, gone. Oh, 100%. Yeah, okay. I just don't know if the walls would still stand. I got you. Maybe they would. Maybe they wouldn't. Yeah. How many times bigger of a building would it take for it not to destroy the entire fucking thing than the one we're in now? Much, much bigger. Like 5X, 10X? I'd say, I don't even know. Yeah. I don't even know. I'd say, it, I mean, I think if you hit the right skyscraper with a high mar and a right angle, it goes down. Yeah. I mean, so I just don't know. I got you. I don't know about that. Um, maybe we can, uh, look up high Mars and what, uh, I'm curious what the explosive weight is. I mean, it, it from the sounds of it, it's gotta be hundreds of pounds. I then. think it's like a seven or nine foot long rocket. Yeah. I don't know exactly yeah. what it packs though. So a 50 pound bomb basically, but I mean, obviously placed, placed in the right spot and with 
the amount of metal shrapnel uh, that, that's a lot still i mean it's not a 500 pounder but yeah. it it's uh gets the fucking job it's not a uh, 40 mic mic either yeah yeah it seemed <laughs> yeah. to work better than the law <laughs> yeah yeah or an 80 yeah 84 millimeter um yeah, yeah. all right so you guys hit the wrong target what what happened after that i mean the battlefield went quiet uh, like i said they didn't understand those kind of weapons just appear and nobody they didn't see anybody shoot it they didn't hear anything it just appeared broke the sound barrier Boom, boom, and then everything went away. So that stopped them. And, uh, and again, um, that's one of those situations where it was, it was you know, late in the fight already. It was starting to wind down towards evening time. Um, after that, it was a big lull. I think that, that kind of took us into, there might have been some pockets, you know, but that took us into, into nighttime. And then we re- reconnoitered. We did, did, a, did a leader's recon of uh, the OEs that we seen in the machine gun bunkers. And that was wild because I never thought I'd see a machine gun bunker. I seen multiple machine gun bunkers on that pump. Fought multiple machine gun bunkers, which was, which was just insane. Um, but once we located them, um, we snuck up into a house like uh, just a few hundred meters right in front of them. The last little defendable position before you got to them and we slept for the night and then in the morning we conducted a frontal assault and action right on that onto that bunker system and we took our objective how uh <clears throat> how dicey was taking that bunker system fucking bad <laughs> yeah. how long did so, it take well i was a support by fire element and then we we're gonna have two squads push across do an action right and sweep we had snipers up um at an elevated position and um most of the day before we before we consolidated uh, at the bottom, it took most of the day. But I did like morning prayer, drank their chai, and then uh, and then then it was on. Um, I shot a law rocket from the support by fire when we were really getting after it, and it just it just dusted it. It didn't do shit. It was like boom. I'm like fuck yeah, and then all six cat holes blop. Um, the Afghan commander got shot in the face right in front of me that day. Um, Your guy is Afghan. Commander. Yeah, yeah. So the friendly, friendly force Kandak commander, we're getting ready to move up to this little, you know, 30-inch mud hut kind of old structure, um, probably an old footing or something, but it was just in the middle between me and the machine gun bunker. And uh, we went to move up to that to fight from it with the support by fire. And just as soon as we come out, he just – Afghan commander's right here. We're running, and uh, I see his boots. I just just seen his boots, and he just whopped straight to the face. His boots came up. Corporal Charette, shout out. He's a co-host to my show, Um, my my team leader uh, for that pump. And I said, get him up. Corporal Charette had just come back from uh, JTAX. He's JTAX certified on the the ground uh, to some extent, so he could talk to birds pretty good. He just came home from school, so – you know, like my Aiden litter team go out, they get him, they bring him back. One of our corpsmen start tending to this guy. And I shit you not, he was fighting less than a month later with us. Wow. Took a round right here, 762, and it blew out his ear. And those guys stabilized him, got him on a bird, got him to the next echelon of care. He lived and ended up uh, coming back. But that was the fighting that day. It was just all, all on us. Um, when that happened, uh, we called in some uh, – like Cobra Cobra section gunships, and they came in with that that uh, gal that they that they pack, and they start chewing that bunker to pieces, uh, getting it in there enough for them to bail out. 
And then, you know, we had a sniper team very close proximity with a 50 cal sass that was just blowing them apart. How, do you know about how many dudes were in the bunker system? Well, there were six firing holes in each bunker. Um, and it was wild. I, I wish I had pictures, but when you go into it, it's very small and you kind of climb up and then it had like places for your guns and the bipods to go right into the hole. And then they weren't even looking. They put them in the hole and blah, blah, blah. Like there's no way you could sight in through it. Mm. So they put it in the hole and then there was like this little firing platform they'd step up on. Uh, so it had enough to fire six at the same time in each bunker. So it was like bunker, 50 or 100 meters up bunker, and they could mutually fire on each other, but they were firing at us out here. Um, and then there was probably, it was laden with probably 10 or 12 IEDs all around the bunkers and then the approach to the bunkers. Did you guys get hit with them or did you use the uh, countermeasures to get, get to that area? You mean the IEDs? Yeah. So once we, the guys marked and bypassed them when they're doing an action right. But so after, after the fighting stopped, the EOD came in, uh, blew the ones in place that were working. A lot of them were buried so long, I think that they went bad yeah. uh, somehow. And so they dug those up, put them inside the bunkers, threw a couple satchels of C4. That's what it took to take these bunkers down because they were so reinforced. It was wow. like one or two satchels uh, to implode them. And, and once that was done, um, once that was done, we set in. And we owned that area for for the next little bit. So there was six fighting positions per bunker and how many bunkers? Two at that spot. Okay. Yeah. So the the two the dozen or so guys that you finally kind of smoke out of there, you guys dust all of them. I would think all of them yeah. died, yeah. Um I know the snipers hit a lot of them blowing out after those choppers came in. Yeah. Talk to some of those guys, yeah. What are the two key components for canine success? That's effective training and proper nutrition. Fueled by Team Dog brings those two components to your family and best friend. The perfect nutritional balance that results in a higher mental acuity, energy, overall vitality, and even an improved appearance. Every product you will find in my company's store was born from the battlefield and not from the boardroom. Let my life's work help you become your dog's hero. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen didn't take any heavies on your end other than the afghan commander to the face not that day um here's here's one story it's in the book and it's important <laughs> because it's so unorthodox and i've never heard anybody have a situation like this but while we're in the support by fire and we're leaning into this bunker and our guys are you know about to do this action right we intercepted traffic that said hit them with the big one and they start passing that down the line something big something big keep you know we figured um sv bid you know, what else would be the big one? And uh, so everybody's cautious and on alert for the big one. And we're laying into this bunker, you know, whole platoon of guys reinforced laying into the bunker. And all of a sudden, here comes the largest mule I've ever seen comes running down the road. And now there's a land bridge. And if he comes out of that land bridge, he's like 200 meters from us. And he's got 
this contraption on his back. It's like four foot up, four foot wide, and he's running right at the land bridge like he's coming at us. God damn, I know where this is going. And I don't know who it was, man, but somebody yelled, it's the big one. And instead of shooting at the machine gun bunker where rounds are getting fired out of, every swinging dick turned onto that mule. And just he ate shit, man. And I don't know how many hundreds of times he got hit. I mean, machine guns, saws, all of our small arms, people turned on to him, and he just, you know, right there at the land bridge. And later we found out that it was a big bundle of poppy stems. It wasn't the big one. But we all, we all thought it was because of what we heard. And so um, shitty thing about that is nobody's coming to clean him up. So he's just laying there where now our home is going to be for an extended period of time. And just, uh, there's a lot of that, but it was, it was wild to see every Marine hard ass that's fighting an enemy that is shooting at him, switch off of the guns that are firing at him to kill this mule or donkey, whatever it was. Um, but that was, that was a funnier thing that happened. I think, uh, in a time when things weren't really funny. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's an interesting angle, I guess. It's something that I think a lot of people maybe think about it, maybe they don't, but it's not something that gets highlighted very often is the, I'll call it atrocity and unfortunate reality that how animals are impacted in war zones oh, because man. obviously they have no fucking concept of what's going on. Mm-hmm. A lot of them, most of them, probably all of them are scared. Um, you know, and, and you see just the, the shitty fucking things that, that happen to everything, you know, yeah. I mean, there, there's just nothing fucking good about it, nope. you know? And, and to me, it, as I, the older I get, the more I reflect on how fucking horrible warfare is, um, and, and how it should just frankly be avoided at absolutely all fucking costs. I couldn't and, agree more, you know, and, and how easily, um, one of the things that chaps my ass the most about our government is how easily some of the spineless fucks that are in office are willing to roger our guys up and roger our resources up to go enact that kind of horrible fucking violence on, on other places with what seems like so little fucking regard. Mm. Um, it, it really fucking, it, it just makes my blood boil when you see you know, so many of our politicians, especially right now that are running for office, we should do this and I'd do that and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you fucking do it then, mm-hmm. you know, who from your family's fucking doing it, mm-hmm. you know, and it, uh, God, it fucking pisses me off. I heard somebody say one time and whoever it is, is it's escaping me. So if it was you, I apologize. Um, I but, doubt so, it was but somebody, <laughs> somebody, somebody told, said, uh, made the comment that, before we ever go to war as the United States against another people, the president of the United States should have to bring an American citizen in the Oval and shoot him in the head. Yeah, that for sure wasn't me. But No, no. I don't believe that that should happen. Yeah. But if you as a president can't do that, yeah. that is what you're doing. Yeah. When you say, okay, we're going to go to war for whatever reason, if you don't believe in it enough to do that, then you better not do it. If you yeah. can't say that that one is good enough... Um, or, yeah. or that you would have part in that, then you shouldn't be sending other other Americans to die. Yeah. And then it becomes a, a game like, okay, so is a proxy war worth, worth doing that? Yeah. Probably not. No, because, I mean, the end result is the same. You know, I mean, you're, you're still, 
contributing to the same same environment you know mm-hmm. now you can continue down the rabbit hole and say okay well you know warfare is is the grim reality of mankind it's always taken place it's always going to take place and and i don't disagree with that i mean i think it's a i don't think it, it is a pipe dream to think that world peace is even possible in my opinion in, in that you know mankind and the psychology behind human beings i don't think allows for world peace to exist i I truly don't and that's not me being a pessimist i think it's more of being a realist of just knowing that power corrupts you know and absolute power absolutely corrupts and there's always going to be people who are in positions of absolute power it's just that's how the world is set up you know that's fact um so there's always going to be an element to that now one could argue that to avoid war uh, and to avoid this happening a lot, and, and I do tend to agree with this uh, in terms of picking a lesser of two evils, is kind of the Tecumseh Sherman, you know, scorched earth fucking policy of like, if if it comes to that, make it so god awful that mm. nobody wants to do it anymore. Because mm. right now, it's like when you look at the tit for tat, the proxy wars, and the little bit of help here, and the little bit like, honestly, it 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 just drags the shit on more. And and to me seems like it makes people and, and nations and collectively our our population of the entire planet suffer more mm. because it's just it, it's constant fucking incursions and and um you know d- different hot spots constantly fucking going on all over the place i don't know it's a racket <clears throat> yeah for sure it is i mean there's there's a ton of money involved and you know it just I don't know. The, the fucking donkey story got to me. I'm sorry. You know, it's just like. <laughs> no, it's a fact. It's bad. It's bad for yeah. everybody. No, I know, you know, some, some may be listening. You didn't have any emotion, you know, hearing 14 women and kids. You know, to me, it's, it's, you know, maybe it's even a pun, but it's like the straw that broke the camel's back almost. It's, it's like, it's one more thing of just like, fuck, man. Mm. You know, like, it, I think it just highlights, you know, both of those stories, like, kind of compacted into the same day basically mm. or the same even you know few hours i think really speaks volumes and kind of highlights the atrocity of of what, what warfare is you know um and it's just fucking bad for everybody anyway it's not about me i'll i'll leave my feelings where they belong which is in this fucking drawer but uh anyway so you guys uh Open fire on the donkey. Nothing happens. You continue to, to battle it out with the rest of the guys. What happens after that? Yeah, eventually we got them all. Um, and still hadn't taken any casualties on your end. Nah, Not I mean yet. I had the saw gunner that got shot the day before, but as far as um, anything else, that fight, no, on my end we didn't take anything. Um, got to see a you know amazing display of firepower, both from the Cobras, the fixed wings that day, the high Mars. Um, even though all of it didn't uh, amount to hurrah, some of it amounted to what the fuck, but it was firepower I've never seen, you know, never thought that I would call in. Um, and so we take over, uh, basically we take over the, uh, there's a little gas station um, at the at the end of the uh, bazaar and then the would-be bomb maker's house. We took over all that shit, threw up posts, put claymores out, or sea wire up if we had it everybody carried three sandbags in underneath of their uh sappies so we'd have some sort of defendability when we got there and uh so we built post and then it was like three or four days of them probing trying to counterattack. but you got 240 set in 
and dedicated posts, you're not fucking with us. Like they just get rolled. And um Yeah, it became a um became a situation where now we have to own this area. And um eventually the Glock got opened up after a couple of days, uh, ground line of communication. Um uh, trucks came in. Um and that was wild. Trucks came in, and, and so when trucks came in, so did bulldozers and such that were going to now build what became Camp Hansen. Um, and so as they're building that, it's just kind of a good segue. As they're building this FOB for us, uh, this forward, forward operating uh, position, uh, they take some fire, some of the... Uh, some of the, uh, some of the uh, up armored bulldozers take fire and so they return fire they kill a guy they tell us about it i'm on react some lt's like hey go up see what you can find you know see if he's got anything on him so i go up there take my terp with me and uh start talking to the locals that are around you know some of them are trying to say he's a farmer some of them aren't saying nothing um and i have one lady come up and say he comes from down the hill and I thought that was weird. I looked down the hill and it's just nothing but black flags flying in this whole village down there. And she said, and she told my turp, you could go there, but you won't leave there. And so he told me, she said, we could go down there, but she says, you ain't coming out of there. And so obviously you're going to make a mission <laughs> to go down there. And uh, so we'll go back. We make a mission. We execute it the next day. And, and one of us didn't come out of there. They were hard. Um, we went down, um, we had two squads, so one satellited me out to the east of me and uh, fought our way up. They had a uh, like an old Russian-built or English-built radio tower there, uh, right where Camp Hansen was, was located at. And so um, we needed to own that because it would overlook our FOB. And so you couldn't have that. So go up, we own that, and then we go down into the, to the city there. Well, as we're on top, uh, I have the high ground. Now my partner squad is down here in like a chisel cut poppy field and they're making their way up and all hell breaks loose on me. All hell breaks loose on them. And I'm like at the military crest of this little hill and the, the rounds are just sweeping the top of it all over the top, trying to figure out what the fuck is going on. And I get eyes on us, another machine gun bunker esque. And uh, so I call in for mortars Mortars hadn't really fired that many times yet, and they missed terribly. Um, they missed so bad that you'd have to spin a whole new mission up. You couldn't even just adjust off of it. So I'm like, fuck. We call in Cobras. I had one of my one of my Marines, a little, uh, little Boston accent Marine, Makowitz, and he was surgical with the 203. Um, and he puts the smoke right on top of the bunker, and it's fluttering. And these guys go into the pop, and because I don't have a JTAC with me, I type two control, they have to see and have positive identification of the enemy firing. And these guys are just opening up on this hill and they can't see them. So they won't fire. Um, and so the next idea I had, the next thing I had was a law, I took a law, put it into the, uh, into the bunker. Boom. It kind of stopped firing a little bit, but it didn't neutralize it completely. Um, and so we like, I, I pulled a, Colonel Hal Moore and just told everybody we're going to make this hill and we're going to gain fire superiority, shoot at anything you that looks like it shouldn't be there. And we made the hill and just rain. You know, as soon as you make the hill and you start firing, get superiority, you notice the bunker. 
And so we did that, hit it with the law. I think a couple guys fragged it afterwards. It wasn't me, but they fragged it on the move coming in. Um, but at the same time as all that happened, so I get this neutralized. My DM, uh, Corporal Bennett, shout out. He rolls a couple of guys deep that were firing down on this squad. And they're in the middle of this cut, cut uh, chisel cut poppy field just eating it. I mean, they're pouring it on them like water. So he, he, he takes them out, and the whole battlefield kind of goes quiet. And I hit the you know black gear. I'm like, Hind, you're good to move. And he comes back. He said, are you sure? Because he, he, he got shot through the drop pouch initiated ignited one of his smoke grenades is burning him he thinks he's hit like they had a whole a whole shit show down there and i said yes you're good move now and so they start moving up to take a building out of that poppy field and uh and matthias hansen gets hit matthias hansen gets hit in the hip they pull him into the they pull him into the room and he hit his hit ricocheted all the way through his body and he's in and out. Doc's trying to keep him up, you know. And I'm up on this hill still holding security, not knowing what's going on, you know. You know. And then, um, you know, you hear that you hear that uh, radio call go out. You got Guardian Angel, I think is what we called him at the time, as when some Marine passes. And then they call back and say, no, he's up, he's up. And so the choppers get pushed. And, uh and, you know, we put him on the bird alive. Th those guys put him on the bird alive. And when you're a grunt, that's what you want to do. You want to get the guy on the bird alive inside that golden hour. And the chances of him living just uh, increase exponentially. And so knowing that they got one of my guys, but that he was on the bird, now I'm pissed. Now it's like, hey, we're going to go get these motherfuckers. And um, that's what we did. We went down in that city and we start clear hold, clear hold, clear hold, clear hold. And um, some, some closer engagements. Um, some really dicey running into fire uh, situations happened right then. Like seeing the, you know, moon dust kick up between me and another guy as we're making a, you know, our way across an opening. Um, What's the closest proximity you engage somebody at? I don't know, 20 feet, 15 feet, something like that. So it, it wasn't often. Yeah. It was very seldom that that happened, but that hits different. Yeah. Um, I think I hit a guy with like a half a magazine i can't tell you the exact count but from his girdle to his face um and i was scared you know what i mean it wasn't like this is fun it was, bah, 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 you know somebody just come hot yeah and, just uh, keep squeezing until they fucking drop. mozambique yeah i'm gonna hit you till till you go down um but that didn't happen often yeah. it was most of the time like i said you know 200 uh, yeah. and so uh, we consolidated that day with uh, our platoon sergeant carrying uh, joe wright carrying his own gear and carrying Hanson's gear. And, Did you guys uh, keep tabs on what happened to Hanson? You mean as far as when he left? I mean, yeah, like once he left, did you guys get any updates on him? Yeah, we got update that night that he had passed. Yeah. Yeah. How and, did, uh, that was the hardest. How how did, uh, I guess, did, did you, were you made aware of that first? No. So his squad leader... And, and our platoon commander, platoon sergeant, got the call from company first sergeant that he didn't make it. Um, and I thought it was weird because my platoon commander didn't smoke cigarettes. And I seen him with a cigarette with my platoon sergeant kind of like disappearing outside the wire into the bazaar by themselves. And look, what the fuck are they doing? Makes sense now. Um, but I was on my way back in, in the building that I that my squad had, it was like first squads 
on this side and then I'm on this side with my guys. And I had to walk through their birthing area, you know, makeshift to get to mine. And I was on my way through there. Everybody was happy. We really fucked them up that day. Um, except for, you know, we were waiting on word for, from, from, from Hanson. Um, and his squad leaders comes up to me and he's like, Hey, he didn't make it. I had to tell you that. So you need to get your shit together and, uh, tell your guys two or three of my guys were best friends with him, you know? And, uh, that's tough, man. I felt like I couldn't breathe. Um, and you know, you don't want to look like a bitch in front of your guys. You don't want to, you know, you, if you're, if you're not calm, they're not going to be calm. And if, if you're a mess, they're going to be a mess. Uh, and then some, and so, um, I try to compose myself and all of my guys were inside the same room because it was super cold at the time. And, uh, so there was only a couple of blankets and everybody's kind of laying in there. And there was a big thick rubber tarp that hung down as like the door. Uh, kept all light out except for a couple of bullet holes that were in it. And um, I came into that room and I was mad, man. I was like super, super, super fucking pissed. I wanted to go up there and kill everybody. And uh, I just came into the room and I yelled, you know, get the fuck out of here. And I was talking to all my guys, get the fuck out. And uh, they're all like, what the fuck, you know, we can, we need to sleep. You just told us to sleep, you know. And they get out. Well, Charette had had his like a earbuds or something in headphones in so he didn't hear me and so all my guys got out but him and man i just fell apart mad you know screaming and he like uh you okay <laughs> and i'm like dude we lost him and now i gotta find a way to tell these other marines that are his best friend about that and then i gotta tell them we're going out in the morning to get those guys and how do you do that and uh, that's not something that uh, that they tell you how to do. Oh, you got to feel through that. Is that? I it's mean, not easy. Yeah, I never lost a marine. Period. You know, let alone one that I gave the command, "Hey, you're good to move. I got you covered." And ten seconds later, I don't have you covered. Um, so there was some ownership I was taking for that. Um, and then we called him back in. You know, we called him back in and. Told him. How did you tell him? I did it just like that. I brought him in. I said, hey, the unfortunate reality of war is that sometimes you bury your brothers. And he was the only one that got hurt that day. So, Yeah. Yeah, that's tough. Um, how did they react when they heard it? I mean, did they break down? Did they... Were they angry? How, how did you guys kind of move forward in, in the immediate aftermath of hearing that? You know, we had that, we had that day. Um, we didn't go back out that day. There was other squads kind of doing stuff. But, um, yeah, it wasn't good. It was, you know. Everybody was down. If one of your best friends is dead. Um, but we talked afterwards. Hey, we're going right back up there. The deployment don't stop here. That was February 21st. Um, so, like, not even 10 days in. And um, just told him, hey, we got to go back out. And it's not that we've got to. My guys wanted to, which is why I beat my fucking chest ever. 
And then, you know, we spent the rest of the deployment making sure that they knew that was a mistake, you know. Yeah. When you guys went back uh, back in that next day, uh, was there a, a resurgence of vengeance that kind of broiled through you guys in, in terms of how you operated, or was it business as usual? You know, we had uh, we had a talk before we went out. Um, I give all credit to my platoon commander on that because it wasn't the talk I would have had. Um, but it was a talk like this. Hey, you guys want to go kill them all? Let's go kill that whole fucking city. Women, children, let's fucking kill all of them. That's what you want, right? That's what you want to do. And that's not what we want to do. And you don't know that until you hear that as an, as an American Marine. Um, we know we can't do that. And that's what separates us from them is that we don't go do that. Um, and she said, yeah, that's what I thought. We're going to go and we're going to kill the people responsible for this, but we are not going to kill everything. That's what makes us different. We're not animals. Had that talk and it was business as usual. Yeah. A couple of the boots were a little bit more nervous. It made it real for some of us, like a little bit more real than maybe it already was. Um, there was no hesitation. Um, that's something I think it humbled us. Um, so it wasn't like gung ho, let's go push into a bad spot, but it was okay. Methodical tactical. That's the best. That's the best approach to this. Uh, you don't ever want to do anything on an emotional high or an emotional low uh, because it clouds judgment. And at the time we were at an emotional low. So we needed that talk. We needed that sentiment from him to say, Hey, I'm just as mad as the rest of you. But the way we execute the next six months is what makes us different. Um, and you know, it hit with a lot of guys It resonated. Yeah. So. Uh, so at this point you'd been at it for about 10 days. Close to 10 days. 10 yeah. days. Um, it's going to sound like a strange question given what we just talked about, but logistically, when they're bringing trucks in, they're resupplying food and whatever, are you guys living off of MREs? Yeah, yeah strike, strike, uh, first strike MREs. So they had like more main meals than the normal ones yeah. and less bullshit. So we had those for, we lived off those for a while. Like, like two a day, three a day? You mean MREs? Yeah. Yeah, probably two a day. Um, but also we were catching chickens and rabbits and gutting and skinning them and cooking them on fire. And, really? Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. We ate well, uh, at least for that portion. Yeah. Um, so you, all right. So sorry for the uh, the derail there. I was just curious. Um, so you guys go back into that uh, area to you know, get payback, so to speak. Um, how, how did that go? How long did it take? Was it one day? Oh, it was just a you know half a day half a day patrol it was uneventful um nobody got hurt and we probably killed a couple of them you know but it they weren't they weren't fighting in force that day i think maybe they knew like oh <laughs> they brought the whole platoon up here you know or whatever i i don't know so yeah. we had air on station the whole time and that's the thing about mars is never in my career to have air on station for all of it we had all of it all of it yeah um, and so that made it, that made it better. Yeah. Where did you guys go after, after that? Once you clear through there, what was the, cause that, that total incursion was about 20 days, right? Were, that you were out at that point. Yeah. So 13th through the 21st, 22nd. Now you're, you're talking about getting into March now and we stayed right there, uh, for an extended period of time until like the battalion main came in and such. 
uh, because we had been operating the area. They want us to stay for a while. Our company got pushed out uh, to a place called Five Points um, that was outside of, um, you know, like Northern Marja proper. It wasn't right there at Camp Hansen. And so shortly after the battalion main and such gets in, in which we were fighting the whole time. I mean, you go out, we had, you know, multiple patrols during the day, patrol at night. And again, it got to a point where like you could pick the northing or the southing that that you were going to get contact on, right? Like they would stay in their bubble, we would stay in our bubble, and then we'd probe each other. Um, so Knowing if, right where you're going to get. So it. if you wanted to get some, you knew where to go to get some. Yeah. If you wanted to be, which we always went and got some, but if 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 you didn't want to get some, then you'd stay a little bit closer, you know, or um, whatever. So we did that for probably a month. Um, you guys got which is is it's hard that's another thing i would say it's hard is you don't take a you can do what you want but to take a company that has been engaged almost you know the entire 20 30 days and then put the battalion main flagpole at their spot and expect them to do like cag operations near that and deal with the locals is fucking stupid cag meaning uh, civil affairs group so they had like civil affairs groups come in they're giving m- locals money and yeah. giving them like different fertilizer that doesn't have ammonium nitrate in it because that's what they were blowing us up with was ammonium nitrate and aluminum yeah. uh, we called it anal and um and that's just powerful they were fucking us up with it um i flip a 20 thousand uh, pound mrap two times in the air yeah and uh you know everybody in it's now fucked with their heads and and such so that that was a big thing. I worked with some DEA on that deployment. They would come in and, like, when we found big caches of, you know, heroin or, uh, you know, poppy, uh, the black tar being, like, rubber bags that thick because it would eat through it, they would come in and, and, and look at how they were making it, how they were – same same thing with the ammonium nitrate. They would come down and send experts down because they'd, they'd have it out like a paste on uh, – it was like a paste on uh, on the ground on, like, plastic on, like, a tarp. And then they'd, that paste would get hard, go into the bucket as a paste, and then it firms up and gets hard as, you know, and then with the uh, with the right mixture, you put a blasting cap in the middle of that, and now you have this compressed, uh, I don't know the exact science of it, but it, it they did. And the so, ammonium nitrate, you're saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The way that they mixed it up and the, you know, I'm not sure what the, uh, yeah. how much parts aluminum to. Yeah, so the gist is, is, uh, and hopefully this doesn't fucking get us in any trouble. It's just cooked down, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, fertilizer, ammonium nitrate fertilizer has a percentage of um, strength to it, basically. You know, and here in the United States, it's it's pretty low. It's like, I want to say 20 or 30% pure um, over there. It's, it's a little more, I think. But the, what they do is they, no different than, say, in, like if you reduce wine or sugar cooking something it's it's the same thing is that they cook it down so that it, it makes the percentage purity a lot mm. higher and and therefore more potent check uh, and then they add yeah aluminum powders and sometimes they'll add uh, peroxides and uh, even detergents and shit to you know emulsifiers I mean, all kinds of different shit mm-hmm. to, to add in there to make it fucking worse but anyway um so that you were there the entire scope of that deployment was six months right seven seven months so that first 20 days is kind of what we just covered right right and and the first 10 days super in detail the second 10 days was more of the same uh you guys didn't lose any more guys no Hanson was the one we lost there yeah um once 
command came in, stuck their dick in the ground and said, why don't you guys, you know, go win the hearts and minds. From that point on, that, that the rest of that seven-month deployment, were there other excursions similar to this one where you went out for multiple days and fucking really got some? I would say I would say most of the deployment was that way. Um, I mean, I, it would, I know it sounds weird because it, it sounds like how could you fight that much? Um, we, we got on these cycles. So once we got out away from the flagpole, we did that civil affairs thing. Uh, very short period of time before they realized, hey, we need to yeah. get them the fuck out of here. These aren't the right guys for that. Right. Yeah. And so we went out to five points. Um, and then you would be like, now we have a whole company co-located. So you'd have like a platoon on post, like watch, uh, guard post, machine gun posts uh, at the fob there or at the, at the cop. Uh, you'd have a platoon doing raids and patrol cycle and then because of how bad they were with the ieds and setting them down 605 which was the msr we were on and that led back to the heart of marja we picketed that with like um like a cop we'd set up a cop uh like every click or so all the way back to marja so that we always had eyes as best we could to picket to make sure that they couldn't keep blowing our supply trains up yeah and so it was 10, 10, 10, 10 on post, 10 on patrol days, uh, and then 10 on the, on the picket. Now out of the picket, you still had to support your own patrolling effort around your, around your cop or around your OP. Um, when you're raiding, you're raiding, uh, like when you're on patrol cycle, you're building patrols to get up there, blow their bridges up, blow their supply trains up, kill them. And, um, and like I said, all you needed to know was in Northern and where's it been hot roger and then you would go there you know plan plan for that um in that first 10 days i didn't mention um we lost courier as well um eric courier he got caught by machine gun from his girl to uh, to his uh his neck up here when when and where did that happen uh that was that was in between that was around the time where the water got delivered and, and they shot and couldn't get the food. Um, it was in the morning time and they needed to go back. That was a different platoon, but I was the closest friendly element. The rest of my platoon was down after we took the bomb makers house. They're down there. Well, I'm still stuck up here for a couple of days running water because they dropped an air force pallet of 10,000 bottles of water. And so I'm running water down to that spot for a couple of days and I woke up one morning and I thought it was weird because we didn't hear any gunfighting. Like usually right after call of prayer is on hear nothing, hear nothing, hear nothing. And then I hear, um, I hear couriers platoon, uh, commander come on and say that they were almost out of green gear batteries and they were headed back to shinny wall, the little city that we had to come through in the beginning. That's where our command post was still at. They was going back there to get batteries. Well, they had to cross like a 1400 meter open step to get back over there and uh and two machine gun uh team to the south and just took down the whole first team wow killed one wounded three two or three and um i grabbed my gear i grabbed six guys and ran for them um my platoon sergeant came with me and we got over there neutralized machine gun team and then we had to coordinate fires and coordinate uh, kazavak to get get those guys out of there Tim Smith was one of my friends that I came from 3-2 with, the whole top of his forearm blown off by 7-6-2, you know, coming in, which is lucky because, you know, other guys weren't as, uh, weren't as lucky. So uh, 
so we lost Courier that day. That that platoon was humbled. My platoon was humbled on the day that we lost uh, Matthias, and then uh, and then, like I said, we moved out and started getting breaking into that cycle, uh, that three system, that three 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 stage cycle that we got in, and, and it you know it, it went by good, um, and we got to fuck a lot of them up. Anybody that tested us, we went up and got them. Um, before you get into some of that, the bomb maker's house that you guys took over, you guys took the house over. Did you catch him? Um, you know, he could have been one of the guys in the bunker, could have been one of the guys that got killed squirting, or, or he could have been, I don't know. Yeah. I, we didn't have a picture of this guy. Uh, maybe the CIA did. I didn't know a name yeah. or, or a picture. We just knew he was operating out of that node, and they wanted to take the leadership of that node down. Yeah. I don't know if it's a particular guy. But it was a particular structure. Particular structure yeah. and area. Was yeah. it different than everything else? Like, were his accounts? You could tell they were eating better. That's about it. Yeah. You know, they had a, a few more blankets, but this is Stone Age people. This is, you know, so there was nothing cool there. Yeah. Anything surprising? No. Yeah. A lot of copper wire. I mean, he had yeah. a lot of materials. Everybody did. Every house we hit, batteries, copper wire, everything, yeah. weapons. Yeah. You know. Um, all right. So once you get into this kind of three tiered rotation, you fucked a lot of them up. Uh, can you share some of the heavier operational stories that, uh, that some of those took place and just kind of walk through like a step by step? Yeah. Um, getting out to five points was different. Um, just because we hadn't been there yet, I think. And so the first couple of patrols I went on were like familiarization patrols just with the area. I would go out with other squads before I took my squad out. And then it became, uh, one day it became that I was out, I had a census operation to do. We wanted to get census of uh, military-age males, uh, imams, and mosques in the area. And so I ran my whole patrol. I got like, you know, 50% through my, my patrol, halfway through it, and about to RTB. And... Um, I look to the south and I'm on like kind of like our southern border, the border they told me don't go south of here. Uh, I look to the south and manage bad times going down there. Black mam jams everywhere, glassing us, cell phones in their hand, the whole nine. So I hit the watcho up, say, hey, you know, I want to go down here. What say you? I had my lieutenant with me. Um, we we're about to go get him. And they came back and, and said, yeah, you, you know, every 30 minutes, give us comms checks, you know. But you're good. So we go down there, and I'm talking to this imam at this mosque, and you know, I'm, I'm asking him, where's the Taliban? You know, when do you know? And, of course, none of them. Uh, no Taliban, no Taliban. And one thing I would tell the people there, and two times they had to make me a man of my word, is I would tell them, if, if I walk out of here after you telling me there's no Taliban and I take fire, I'm going to shoot you. I'm going to come back, and I'm going to put one in, in your head. That, that's how serious I am. And just like that day, no talib, no talib, you know, very good, you know, have these smiles on their face. And as soon as I walked out, shoot, you know, whop, 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 right past me hitting there. Um, so you walked back in? Not that day. I waited till he fired at me to walk back in. Uh, he was part of it. Um, the imam. The imam. He wasn't an imam. Oh, I just a Just a guy. He was just know? playing and, one on And TV. I thought he was an imam, you know. Turn around, and you you know when you look in somebody's eyes, yeah. you know, they want to kill you. They have lust for your blood. Seen that. I put him down. Um, we And we killed, a, we killed a number of dudes that day, maybe eight or ten of them. And we got down on. That was a day that put guys down, and I'm watching their weapons, knowing that nobody's taking them. Um, um, 
that day was intense. I, you know, we were down there and there's a lot of canal systems down there. And, and I had a short Marine named Wright with me, short little, uh, short little dark green Marine. And uh, he went down in one of those wadis and almost drowned. Uh, something you're not thinking about in combat, you know? And so the wadi was a little bit deeper than he was tall. And we had to like hold him up and, and get through wadi. So that was, that was weird. One of those things I didn't think, uh, you know, that wasn't, wasn't something I thought about how to lose a Marine. Hypothermia is another thing that I didn't think about that happened on that deployment. Um, in training, did you guys ever uh, practice river crossings? No. No, rivers, no. No, we just would just get in it and go. Like that, that's kind of what they do for us. <laughs> yeah. um, they had some bridge yeah. systems that they brought into Marsha. Some of the yeah. uh, truck company guys, and you know, and 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 I'm sure they did a lot of training like that. But yeah. no, I didn't do a whole lot of crossing. Yeah. So, uh, so going back to this kind of three tiered rotation, uh, you got patrol, you've got the picket stuff. What was the third one? Uh, like a raid force. Raid so we're, force. we're building pack, you know, building packages to go out to certain places. Um, sometimes it'd be to blow up a blow up a bridge. So these would be like quick assault target packages where it's like you build intel, build a uh, concept of operations that gets approved. You run, do it, and come back. It's usually like less than a day. Uh, four to six hours if yeah. nothing goes bad. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, maybe a little longer if you get in a fight. But by the time we we were doing five points you know it doesn't i know it's only like a month in but a month in you've learned a lot of things as a squad or as an element when it's like that yeah and so we just meshed totally totally meshed and um and yeah like four four to six hours you know you're gonna step off you're gonna hit some points um there's a lot of things on the back end as a squad leader and as team leaders are doing up at the coc putting uh pre-approved strike packages together on houses that you've took contact from establishing the patrol route you know, and then afterwards, you know, uh, whether you took contact or not, you're meeting back up with the the C2 click, you know, node, the intelligence node for your company, and you're debriefing everything so that they can build another, you know, uh, package for the guys. But more often than not, we went up and we, you know, tangled with them. And, and um, I remember towards the end, we had something called a five-day war is what we refer to it. In the book, it's referred to that. And we went up and just absolutely got in their backyards, blew every bridge up, fought every one of them that would fight us. Um, the only time ever in my career I went red on ammo as a squad. Um, we had a machine gun lose a lose the sear block, so it ran away, and I ran out of ammo on one of my guns. Only, I mean, it was a wild, um, a wild push uh, on, on that one. And we did that for five straight days. We put a PB up in their shit and just ran out of it for five days with two, two squads reinforced, just absolutely staying in their face. PB is what? A patrol base, just okay. like a 24 hour. Usually, I mean, by, by definition, you only want to be there for 24 hours. Um, but we stayed there five days and, and just dared them to come on. I mean, we were taking fire at our, at our patrol base, our machine guns on top were, were taking random rounds when we didn't have a squad out. Um, my squad, uh, my squad did the only, uh, only attempt, but successful peel in combat banana, like Aussie peel, which was pretty cool. Um, it's like a lateral enemy element. That's like in a couple of buildings this way. And we had to go, we were at, like running out of ammo. That was that day. And, uh, <laughs> it just worked. Like, I remember thinking about it when it was happening. Cause we had like a two foot little irrigation ditch dry. And the enemy was moving the same direction we needed to move. And we opened up with a law, took one of them out, or I, 
I hit him with a law and on the law shot, that was the initiation of the, you know, the start of the peel. And it was just beautiful. You know, it was just one of those things that you like seeing from your dudes. Like yeah. they go down and, uh, and we peeled back into, uh, back into the patrol base after, you know, after that, it was like a 200 yard peel through this irrigation ditch, but it worked and we put the rest of those guys down and then, um, you know, broke contact back to the patrol base. The little things that stick out, like they had watermelon fields. <laughs> so after a long day of fucking them up, we'd hit that watermelon field up and bring watermelon back to the patrol base and crack those open. And uh, they had this little like eight-year-old girl and they stayed in, in the same compound as us. They didn't want to leave. Uh, but when we would come back, she had a little fire going with like an upside down bowl and she was cooking pita bread on it and she'd cook it and she'd see you come in and she'd fire her stuff up and she'd be cooking bread and she'd throw them to you like a Frisbee. As soon as it would come up, she'd throw it to a Marine, <laughs> throw another piece of bread on. And, uh, yeah, that's pretty adorable. Yeah. And the kids there were, you know, just like we said before, everybody yeah. gets fucked up by war, but yeah. the smiles that come to my face are from the children, um, who were just otherwise stuck in a bad spot, but they were always innocent. You know, yeah. they had innocence about them. Yeah. Um, so speaking of the, like the civilian component to that, I know a lot of them were forcibly stuck, stuck there the, the way that the Taliban would kind of leverage them. But, um, were there other instances like, were, was the civilian populace there significant or like what, what kind of numbers in, in the areas that you guys kept going into? Was it a lot of, of a mix of civilians and Taliban? No, I wouldn't say so. Um, we did the leaflet campaign just like they did in Fallujah before we came in, basically dropping shit saying, get out, go coil up in the desert. And they listened. They, they went out. And most of the people in the invasion um, weren't there. It yeah. was, if you Mostly seen somebody, they were, trying to, they were trying to shoot at us or, yeah. or blow us up. So that made things easy. So, like, in a, in the instance of this eight-year-old girl, like, where the fuck were her parents? Were no, they? her dad was right there. Oh, okay. Her dad, her dad was in there. Um I don't know. It's very it's very strange to see only one 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 child. Yeah. Uh, but in that instance, it was her and her dad that lived there. And that's it. Um, and I don't I don't remember seeing any other kids at that one. And, and they, who knows? Yeah. Who knows? I wasn't there. I didn't stay there a long time. We like peeled to her shit, or to her to her building. We set up an op that was five days. So yeah, I don't I know you. where for the other. You yeah. know, what was the dad doing for that five days? He would help us. You know, he would. Um, you know, whether he wanted to or not, I don't know, but yeah. she seemed to not have a problem, which means to me that her dad probably wasn't talking shit about us when we weren't there. Yeah. He was probably okay with it. You know, a lot of people there were just damned. They were just stuck. But I met my fair share of, you know, civilian population that said that they liked the Taliban better than all this fighting. Cause at least with the Taliban, even though they were brutal, um, there wasn't bombs dropped out of the sky and they didn't have to have worry about where IEDs were because those wouldn't be here if the Taliban was just running shit and we weren't here. Yeah. And so that's like, you gotta, okay. Yeah. That's, you know, you get something to think about. Like if we weren't here, would they be even experiencing? And then like the question comes to mind, do oppressed people know that they're oppressed always? We might think they're oppressed, but if, if their life is farming and goats and yeah, if they, if they like how their life is, leave them the fuck alone. I mean, that's my take. The, the yeah. tough part is, you know, with Afghanistan in particular, I think the tough part is they harbored the terrorist unit and allowed them to attack America on nine 11. And so like, you don't get a pass, no, per, no. you know, period. Yeah. The dicey part I think is, is, and I think like any combat veteran over the last fucking 25 years, 
I, I would say in most cases kind of tends to struggle with this is where do you draw that line of enough is enough and, and how far do you go with it and how long and, and to what extent and mm -hmm. it's like there's no fucking right answer as far as war goes, I think that if you're going to go to war as the United States of America, you should do your best to go at war with a country. Um, going to war with terrorism is 20 years long, and you didn't accomplish anything, best of my knowledge. Yeah. Just made more terrorists. Um, you go to war with a country, you can bring country and its proxies to its fucking knees quick. Yeah. But if, Iran, again, going back to Iran, if Iran never feels the heat because we are hitting proxies and the terrorist... Yeah, they're, they're never going to get they're never going to stop yeah yeah so yeah. um all right so that uh the remaining of that deployment was um all kind of organized in that three-tiered system yes sir yeah uh, are there any other operations that stand out during the remainder of that that either went exceptionally well or horribly wrong everything went pretty good uh, I mean, I, yes, there were other times where we're fighting six, seven hours at a time. Things went well. Um, there were um, there were big operations, and we got very good by the time those came. And so everything, we were a well-oiled machine um, when, when some of the bigger things took place, like that five-day war, for instance. We didn't lose anybody, and we fucked up a lot of them. Yeah. A lot of their resource network, a lot of their rat lines. Um, and we were taking fire the whole time. Like, it was a fight, but we got very good um, as a squad and then ultimately as a platoon. Um, we got very good with with all of that. Um, one thing that stands out to me isn't even combat, uh, but I think it's necessary to be told. When we left... I was uh, a remain behind with key leaders to do the left and right seat rip and uh, relief in place transition of authorities, what we call it a rip toe. And so on the, on the right side of that, right before I leave is me just going out with their squad On the front side, it's their squad that are going out with my squad. So me and my Lieutenant go on this last patrol and then we're leaving the next morning, uh, next morning we, we leave. And when we leave, we get to um, the wire at just the right time that there's only like 20 minutes left before the chow hall closes. And we've been talking about these chili cheese burritos for like 48 <laughs> hours, me and LT. Got to get there. We're going to get that chili cheese burrito. We had nothing but E-rations and strike meals for however long. The occasional halal goat, but not often. And... Um, we land, we get there. We had just enough time to drop, stage our gear, and literally run to the chow hall. Now, the last big thing I did was on that five-day war. And on that, uh, or just before the five-day war, I had a fireman carry a, uh, a downed A&A soldier to a bird. And he's hitting the femoral and in the shoulder. So he's fucked up real bad. And he's blowing blood, you know. I got it in my face, on my beard, down my clothes, in my boots. And anybody that's ever had blood stained on their shit knows that it doesn't dry red. Uh, kind of looks like mud or brown, hardish, you know, darker maroon color, whatever. So I tell you that to tell you this. I had already staged my gear because I was leaving later than my main element. So all my new cam or my good camis, non-bloody shit was gone. Um so we sprint to this chow hall. I'm not even thinking about all that. <clears throat> get, in the, get in the chow hall. 
we're at the end of the line and there's a master sergeant and a, like a master guns or a first sergeant in front of me and LT in the line. And we're just happy we're about to get a burrito, right? And uh motherfucker turns around and he goes, you stink, Marine. And don't you think you could have washed your mud off your camis before you came up into my chow hall? And that you know, was not a good situation. Like I flipped my gun off safe. My LT heard it. <laughs> oh, Jesus He's Christ. like, you go over there. You might start come, you know, and he just fucking berates him. You think it's fucking mud, you know, this, that, and the other thing. Of course, they're wearing pressed, starched, fucking yeah, creased, fucking creased, fucking <laughs> marpat, yeah. you know, and I got yeah. blood on my frog outfit. Yeah. And, um, and I would just say to any of you out there, no matter how far you get removed from the guys doing work on the ground, remember that they're doing something different than you and just have a little humility and a little base about you when you have those guys come into the chow hall or you see them or they smell to you because their job is a bit different. Realize that the chow hall exists for those guys. <laughs> yeah. You know? I mean, at its, at its root level. Um, other than the five-day war, um, in that entire rest of the deployment, is there is there one gunfight that stands out as being the most kind of spectacular from an intensity standpoint that you can share it in a high detail level? Um, yeah, I could pick one. Um, okay, so again, uh, one of the uh, leading up to the five-day war, why we would go up to that spot, um, we had several instances of of real really getting really getting after it and um by that time nearly like a lot of the uh a lot of the canals they had a lot of foliage you know a lot of green it's not you don't just see desert right so you have to break that up a bit and um and so we did we we would get in there we would get close to the foliage we'd get all the way into the canal systems and such but um you would just feel it coming about you. After a while, you just know when you're going to get hit. You can tell by the atmospherics, you know, around you. And I remember one day we were going up there, and um, I kind of popped out, and their roads are real small, real skinny at, in that area, like moped or three-wheeler skinny, you know, canals on both sides. And we were moving through this this whole area just trying to get a scope on it. It was when we first kind of got into that area, once we were in five points. It's my first couple of times going north, northeast, and trying to figure out what was going on and uh, because of the density of the foliage your contact could be a whole lot closer then right and uh and that's what happened we came up to it i was kind of popping the road and looking down whatever direction that was to my left and i could see guys on phones like this and just you know in the eyes like like they're watching and reporting on me and it's like all right hey everybody stay frosty these guys are right down here and at the time we weren't allowed to shoot them for that uh, later it became ROE change that if you had somebody actively spotting you or passively spotting, you could drop them. And, um, at that time it wasn't that way. So I remember kind of looking out and I called Grimes up, uh, he's got a saw gut, uh, with him, but he's a team leader at that point. And I say, uh, I say, make your way across, set your saw up right on these guys. And as soon as this opens up, I want you to cut them in half. And he's like, Roger that. So he runs across and I kind of expected them somebody to shoot at him when he ran across. And I told him that he gets across, scurries up, he gets the saw on the tall part of the bipods and he's just aimed in on these guys. I look back at my uh, team leader, Charette, and I said, Hey, um, when this goes down, I want, I want two or threes raining in that courtyard because he could see it too. He's like, I got you. And uh, so we got a couple two or threes up there. I got saw on the ground. 
And I called, I called up the command, like, Hey, this is about to go down, you know, and we had on call targets up here. Uh, a get ready to spin these alpha Bravo, whatever fucking target it was up. Um, so everybody's just kind of waiting on it. And, uh, it was like two, three people cross the road before it fucking opens up. And as soon as it opens up, boom, 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 40 mic mics are coming in. He's, he's fucking wrecked those guys on the road that were kind of peeking and popping. And then that firefight went on for, you know, a little while. I don't know, hours-wise, maybe a couple. But it was cat and mouse down this canal system with them. And it was closer because of the foliage, right? And um, we had the uh, Mark 30. Four, I believe it's a 40 mic mic six, six, six shooter, essentially. We had guys carrying those. So we were able to really put out some explosives over on them and then, uh, and then call in some, call in some sixties. Uh, we, we always travel with sixties in the handheld traditional mode. Uh, so if we had a patrol base out there and we're leaving that patrol base, we had sixties at the patrol base that could come right, you know, right over top of us. You're talking about Hilo 60s. No, no, 60 millimeter mortars. Oh, I got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'd have a a 60 crew wherever we were at that would set up and then just handheld dump the, you know, dump some HE to us. Do you know ballpark what the maximum uh, effective range is of of those as far as... uh, Three clicks, maybe? Okay. Something like that. So they can stay far enough away to where they're out of it, out of it, but you can call them in pretty quick. Yeah. One, one thing to note on that, and this is kind of the end, the tail end of this story. As we fight with this group, we have another squad that's kind of like come out to help canalize that group and put them down. We run a little low on ammo. We've been out four and a half hours. They start to get a handle on the situation. So we are TB to the patrol base. Now we're at the patrol base and they're fucking them up. Uh, JT squad, they're up there doing work, kind of finishing our work. And, um, so we have the sixties there <laughs> and, uh, so a guy is squirting out of that fight, an enemy soldier squirting out of that fight with an 82 millimeter mortar system on the back of a, like a moped. And as he's squirting out, we see it. And, uh, this road is long and you can only go so fast on a moped. Right. And, uh, our 60 millimeter guys set this up in the handheld. They used uh, a machine gunner's arm like this over the courtyard <laughs> wall as their aiming stake. I shit you not in another Marine from this far corner of the courtyard was walking the same speed as the guy was traveling. Holy shit. And so he took those two things. He calculated his flight time. Boom. And the guy disappeared in the plume. Oh, shit. I fucking shit. I talk about it in the book in a little more detail, but the best, the best mortar shot I've ever seen. So you got Kentucky windage and you got Marja windage. Yeah, I know. Right? <laughs> that's it. And just a lot of luck, I Fuck, think. That's awesome, man. Yeah, that's yeah. such such ingenuity. I love it. Yeah. Wild. Yeah. Um, as that deployment wraps up, it sounds like you didn't lose anybody else. No, I mean, there was guys that got, I think we had 13, um, and then we had a lot of purple hearts and guys get, you know, scuffed some wounds, but, um, but yeah, we, uh, we fared way better than the replacement that replaced us seven months, you know, you know, and went seven months. So, uh, we did good. Yeah. Um, when you came home from that deployment, what was your Where's your head at as far as staying in, getting out, and, and what you'd been through? I was staying in. Um, I was shook up. You know, there's things that I took away from that deployment, psychological, maybe uh, wounds, you could say. Um, I spent the next couple of years trying to trying to figure that out. But I, I became a SOI instructor at ITB Infantry Training Battalion. Um, and then uh, 
tried to go to ANS, like I told you from there. Um, that's when they found both my eardrums had been ruptured. They found some brain injuries. Uh, and ultimately, you know, my service came to an end the last day of 2014. They retired me. Yeah. yeah. How, how did you deal with that uh, internally, being retired and, and things not panning out quite how you wanted? Super bad. Yeah. Super bad. Did you? How, how did you deal with it? Drank. Um, try to numb myself. You know, all my friends are still deploying. How do you? How do you do that? You know, did being you, on that side of it was rough. Did you drink every day? Oh yeah, I was. Uh, I was. I was not. I was an alcoholic. Uh, I had a uh, like a Rubbermaid bucket in my garage full of ice and liquor and beer, and that's just not the way. I'm. I'm very adamantly not for alcohol anymore. Um, I had some inpatient time in, in uh, Laurel Ridge right before my second, uh, before my boy was born. I volunteered to go out there because I knew I was struggling with the HIMAR incident and a couple of other things that I was having trouble putting behind me. And I tried to go to, uh, you know, to therapy, but in the infantry, if you go to therapy, you get a black X put on you and, and, the, and the command does thinks you're damaged and I think it's bullshit and you can still get help and then go back and, and do work. Um, and I think we're past that a little bit now. Uh, but at the time it was, that was the way it was. Um, so as you're using alcohol to try to escape, um, you end up doing some inpatient time. Would you say that the experience inpatient wise, was it beneficial? Did it help you? I would say yes. Um, I did inpatient before I retired, um, but it showed me that I wasn't the only person struggling with some of these kid issues and some of these other things. Um, I, I was I was with a lot of people who were in Sadr City, in Iraq, and they were they were just like me. Um, that was a bad place, um, and so I think that was the biggest thing. But it was exposure therapy. It was telling a. Uh, prolonged exposure is telling these stories over and over and over to show your body that, hey, this is in the past, can't hurt you anymore, shouldn't be able to phys physiologically affect you anymore. And so I think I learned a lot of good coping mechanisms, um, but I went into it thinking there was one issue and there was a hundred issues yeah. uh, like that. And, you know, I'm, I'm good now. I, I've gotten past it. It's been some, some years. I still go to therapy. I still talk. Um, which I think is what is the right way. Drinking is not it. Yeah. It doesn't help anything. It, it's a good Band-Aid. Uh, numbs you. Um, let you sleep. Help you sleep. But at the end of the day, if you don't do the work, uh, you're not going to well, It's just compounding. Yeah, you know? that's right. Yeah. Um, what was the path like from, from retirement until as you sit here now? blessed I've been blessed man I have a family support structure that is amazing I have a friend support structure that is second to none um here's an example of my friends I have these seizures now <clears throat> don't know when they're going to come don't know how they're going to come when, when did those start right after I retired uh, it's to do with my head and uh, I actually have a, sp uh, a meeting with uh, the like number seven or eight seizure specialist on the, in the United States at Duke University on the 29th of this month. Oh, shit. And I'll be documenting all of it for guys that maybe are like me or that have situations like I have and they're not sure how to go about it. But um, but I have the friends that 
my last seizure was three seizures in nine hours and I ended up in the ICU. So while I'm in the ICU, this was the day I was supposed to move my house from my old house to my new house. And you know, it still got done. Like I didn't have to call anybody. I didn't have to ask anybody. I was fucked up in the hospital on, on whatever drugs they had me on to try to stop this stuff. And I was there for three days. I don't remember any of it. So whatever drugs they had was good. And, uh, and so I have a bunch of friends that just called in everybody and went over and moved my entire house for me while my family's with me up in the hospital. And, uh, and so that's kind of network I have. And if, if, you know, if that doesn't say anything else, it says that I have the support. And, um, you know, a good woman, my wife, three kids, her first deployment was Marja. And, uh, and out of all of that, she's going to be who she's going to be for me. She holds me when I shake. She looks out for me uh, when things aren't good. And um, and be, what, what I say is if you don't have a support structure like that, it's very hard. Yeah. Guys get guys get thrown by the wayside when they don't have a structure like that. And so um, I quit drinking. Um, and um, I started writing. I started uh, talking. After this book came out, I had so much positive feedback from people I didn't know. I expected it from my guys. And the guys were like, yeah, it's cool, whatever, you know. <laughs> and uh, But it was like one. Cool story, bro. Yeah, yeah it was like uh, <laughs> that, that was their thing, which is cool. That's yeah. that's right on. Yeah. But uh, parents started reaching out to me from one six, three six different companies saying, you know, thank you so much because my son's never talked about this. And it gave me an insight into maybe what went down there for him. And so I was like, well, fuck, I can do that. Nobody's covering the Marine lane. You got a bunch of podcasts out there, military personalities, but there's not a dedicated Marine personality, really. And uh, and I know a bunch of heroes that carried big sticks, you know, and did a lot of good things. And so now I bring them on. I bring, I bring guys on the show to talk about their experiences and talk about their transitions because that's the – experience is one thing, but the transitions where a lot of guys get caught. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's awesome, man. Um, when you have the seizures, uh, is there any inkling on your end? Like, do you know they're coming, or is it just bam, like fucking? I wake up biting through my tongue, pissing my pants in a grandma's seizure, and I don't even notice all that. I come to, and I'm half out of it, sitting up on the edge of the bed with an ambulance there. With you know, Like a lot of times my son will sit with me, my wife's going and getting ambulance people or whatever. I look down, if I see him and it's three in the morning and he's just sitting there, I'm like, fuck. Do you know about how long they last? The longest one was six minutes. Um, the shorter ones are a minute, two minutes uh, or so. How many have you had? I don't know. Like dozens? Several. So, I mean, can you not drive? Uh, well, I'm not epileptic. So I went to the doctor for all this and they said, man, it's only in your sleep. Oh, wow. Until we know more. So it's only when you sleep? It's only in my sleep. If they've looked at sleep apnea, but I don't, it's not it. Yeah. Um, I think it's up here. There's a doctor by the name of Mark Gordon who is doing a lot of stuff with the brain and TBI. And I'll be working with him after I get cleared from Duke um, on an anti-inflammatory diet and proteins for the brain yeah. uh, that he's looking at. And, uh, and I'm excited to start that work. Oh, cool. So, well, shit, keep me posted on that. I'd 100%. love Yeah. I'd love to hear uh, kind of a follow-up on that. Um, as an Afghan vet, especially the the amount of um, heart, blood, and soul that you and your guys put into that country, when you saw 
not just us withdraw from that country, but the way that we did it. Um, how did you deal with that, and, and what were you feeling? Poorly and anger. Um, I watched it play out from my studio at my house. Uh, my turp was caught there from 2010. Um, and so one of my guys called me up and said, you got to do something. <laughs> what can I do? Um, I put an action plan together. I kind of goaded Fox News into having me on by saying a bunch of partisan shit. <laughs> um, That's fucking classic. They had me on in the morning and I said no partisan shit. I only said what I knew and what was going on in at HKI and where my guy was and pictures from my guy and um, that ended up airing in the morning live and, and then I had NGOs and different people from different places contacting me the whole next couple of days and you know uh, one thing led to another 368 days I got him out and he's in the Netherlands oh shit we got him out a bunch of people got him out wow um, which was my sole little win like if I could do anything because it's so fucked up what we did, how we pulled out the tactical mistake of promising a bunch of people the world and then letting them get run up the flagpole. Like I don't know too many people that are going to run out to help the United States of America as Terps in this next war we get into because of that. And that's a tactical error. Yeah. Um, so I deal, I dealt with it bad, but at the same, t at the same time, it's like, I'm glad we're not there anymore. I think we needed to leave. Yeah. Um, and I don't think it mattered what administration that fell on. That was going to be a shit show. But there could have been decisions that were way better tactically for getting out made than, than what it seemed to me like we were doing. Yeah. I agree. Did that, uh, for you, in terms of internal struggle, did that cause any relapse or were you just pissed and worked through it? I was angry about it, but my focus very quickly turned to Cameron shout out Cam, um, uh, and getting him out of there. Yeah. Um, and so once I got that as my mission, okay, I'm going to accomplish this mission. Yeah. I'm not going to worry about that yeah, mission focus. as best as I can. Yeah. Does it suck? It sucks. Did it put a lot of hate in the air and a lot of discontent? It did. Um, I don't know how I, I, we can't go back and rewind and make a different decision. Yeah. There's obvious things I would have done different and, and I think should have been done different, but we're here now. Yeah. So, uh, were there any canines, uh, for, for you? Yep. Like when you, did you guys use them? Yeah. Shit. Um, in the beginning more than, you know, like first 10 days was wild. There wasn't a whole lot of using them, but they were, you know, bomb dogs and, uh, we didn't like not attack dogs, you know, yeah. but they were IED dogs. Um, labs, we had yeah. labs. Yeah. Yeah. Any uh any instances where you can tangibly say like that dog saved our hundred percent. Can yeah. you share one of those stories? Uh just I mean, yeah, one of many would be V sweep in a road and you have a dog that'll go up and lay down and sniff and say, Hey, there's one right here that clearly we would have never fucking seen. And that happened that happened a couple times. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's cool. Not a hundred times. Yeah. But it happened enough to say, Yep, that's yeah. that works. Yeah. You know. Uh, were the handlers not your guys? They were our guys. So, so they, our handlers broke away from the battalion and went and trained with these dogs, familiarized, commands, the whole nine, and then they'd come back with their dog and push. Yeah. That's Don't cool. know if that's the way. Yeah. But that's how we did it. Yeah. I think dedicated handlers probably better. It's hard. It's a 
It's a double-edged sword for sure. You know, I think it depends on the unit. Um, to me, the, the more dynamic the operations, the less just a dedicated handler makes sense, and you got to mm-hmm. have somebody who understands what the fuck they're doing. Mm-hmm. And then I get why. Yeah, yeah. Just- I mean, because they've tried it every fucking which way, and, and even something as simple as, like, I'll give you an example from the SEAL teams. There's instances where they take a guy, he's a SEAL, right? He's been on deployment or, you know, whatever. Like, he, he understands tactically what being a team guy is. He goes over to the dog unit, spends three, four years there, does multiple dog handler deployments, but he's not with his platoon. Mm-hmm. They deploy completely independently of the SEAL team. So let's say SEAL Team 5 goes to Afghanistan. Here's a dude from SEAL Team 1, doesn't know any of those guys, but he's a SEAL, has a dog, has been through the training goes over supports them or or and once he's over there he may bounce around to wherever he's needed the most he may mm-hmm. work with east coast west coast i mean fucking who knows now is that better than taking a, an mp that's not a seal that's never done room clearing that has no fucking concept yes for sure it is better. but is that as good as having a guy who's ingrained with their platoon or if you go to you know let's say damn neck dev group those guys are dedicated shooters to the fucking squadron that you know like that's ideal that's yeah. what I'm saying. That's yeah. ideal. Yeah. We didn't do it that way because yeah. of logistics yeah. and the Marine Corps in general. Yeah. Uh, but that, yeah. You got to have a lot of fucking, uh, <coughs> I'll say, excess budgetarily to be able to pull something yep. like that off and, and enough dudes, you know, to, to do the other mission. Um, did you guys lose any of the dogs? No, not, oh, to, not to my knowledge. That's no, good. I don't think any dogs were lost there. Yeah. Uh, do you still box? No. You should. I mean, I train. I would. I yeah, I mean, I don't I, want to get hit in the head anymore. Yeah, no, I mean, I guess train. You still train. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's good. I, and my, I put my son in it. So, oh, nice. Uh, he's he's in between gyms right now because we started a gym and then COVID came and two years of nobody being in wanting to go to a gym even outside of Camp Lejeune. I thought that was yeah wild, but um, but he'll be getting back into a new gym soon. Yeah. Any jujitsu? No, but that's yeah. something I want to do. There's too many people that I look up to, respect, and uh, and take advice from that do it. Yeah. Uh, for me not to do it, so yeah. it's just a timing thing for me yeah. right now. Yeah. Amen. Uh, what now? What moving forward? Yeah, man. Uh, the po- um, the podcast is is growing. It, it uh, it's good, but it's growing. Um, and um, and I have two more books on the way. Uh, one that I'm just about to get to the editor now and it's a leadership book and actually it's a book of my failures uh as a leader uh so people can learn from my stuff and what i took away from different failures and um and then the other book is is about the 368 days to get my interpreter out uh, of h kaya and it won't be a long book but there were there were people that helped me along the way that were very unsuspecting people i don't still don't know but A, it was a, an entire network of complete strangers that trusted each other, wow. which is pretty amazing. So, did, did you have any red tape or hurdles from the U.S. government? In yeah, I mean, I personally, I didn't. Yeah. Uh, but over there, the State Department had yeah. red tape for everybody getting yeah. out. Well, and nobody mess, worked yeah. in a, as a cohesive unit over there. So I talked to NGOs and State Department officials that said, hey, I can't do this on my main channels, but I'm helping you out here because I think – I think it's all fucked up. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. So the fucking mess. Yeah. Absolute embarrassment. Um, in other news, lions of Marja picked this book up. Phenomenal tale. I hate to use the word tale cause it makes it sound like it's not true. Phenomenal depiction 
of what that area of Afghanistan was like at that time. Uh, he's got two more books, as, as you just heard. Uh, anything else you want to uh, mention before we get your, your parting gift here? No, man, I, I appreciate it. Like I said, I'm, I'm humbled to be here, and I'm glad that I'm glad that we did this. No, dude, thanks for coming, man. I, uh, I really can't thank you enough for coming and sharing your story. It's, a, it's an epic one, and uh, I'll say on, on behalf of the entire country and, and, of course, myself included, thank you for not just your service but everything that you've done for this country because I think uh, those are two separate things. You know, I appreciate that. And here's uh, here's for you. Got uh, the cursory challenge coin with uh, the mic drop logo and oh, yeah. the dog dog label on the other company or the uh, on the other side. Oh yeah. And then in that box, you got uh, Champion Choice Silver and John Johnston, uh, big supporters of the of the show. You got to uh, put that in in with some shit kickers. Hell yeah! So I'll, can, I'll find can, them. Yeah, if you can show that to the, the camera real quick, just so that they can. They can see it. Uh, beautiful craftsmanship. I love uh, love that oh, stuff. So thanks, John, and, and uh, Champion Choice. You guys are the best. For those awesome. of you listening, uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I know I sure did. Um, I think it's it's crucial that you know subsequent generations have the ability to hear stories like Ryan's and what he's been through, um, both from a learning experience, from a historical perspective, and ultimately so that uh, you know. Hopefully, history doesn't repeat itself, and people learn learn from the lessons that uh, that the prior generations go through. But uh, if you didn't get any of those takeaways, feel free to choke yourself. And until next time, this is Mike Drop. Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.